0: Listener supported, WNYC Studios.
1: Hey, it's Anna. Before we get to the new episode, I want to remind you that we have a special series that starts next week about estrangement. You, our listeners, shared your stories of strain that led to ruptures and relationships with communities, even with a set of your former values. And then you told us what happened next. Another thing we heard in your stories about estrangement is that the holiday season, which we are now officially in, can be rough. I've been struggling to be estranged from my mom since Christmas. After a particularly
0: distressing holiday episode.
1: Thanksgiving, she's getting angrier and angrier basically because I said that I needed a break. My dad... Texted at the last minute when we were going to come down on on Christmas Eve day and said, you know what, it it turns out your coming down doesn't work for us. We would have family gatherings and it was the weirdest thing. It was just play acting, but um, some people were pretending that others were ghosts. Is how it felt. If you are looking ahead to a Thanksgiving weekend and thinking about any difficult or even estranged relationships in your life know that you've got some company among your fellow listeners. And we hope this series on estrangement, which starts next week, will be helpful to all of you. In the meantime, here is a fun conversation I taped on stage in Berkeley, California, with writer and humorist Fran Lebowitz. It'll keep you laughing while you cook, or at the very least, help you focus on something else for half an hour. I hope you enjoy it.
2: You know, Luck is the single most important thing in life. And it's the thing people, for some reason, never think about. It's kind of un-American, you know, luck, because you can't do it yourself.
1: This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. Good evening, Fran. How are you? So we're gonna Earlier this year, I got to interview writer Fran Leibowitz on stage at the Berkeley Repertory Theater in California. Fran is a force, and interviewing her is kind of like tossing a softball her way and then just watching to see where she chooses to send it off to. She never misses an opportunity to make an audience laugh, even when she's making fun of them.
2: The main thing I noticed about Berkeley, and I do this because I had been here a few years ago, is the unfathomable and enraging way restaurants are run here, which is that they are open for two hours, then they close, then they're open for two hours. Like, I don't understand the point of this. You have the restaurant, open it. Mm -hmm. And this is the worst thing about Berkeley. In fact, this is the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) And last time I was here, I was thrown out of a restaurant. I was eating, reading a book, and I hear this guy screaming, I didn't pay attention, he kept screaming, and then I looked up, I realized he was screaming at me. And he was saying, get out, get out, get out, we're closing. I said, but I'm in the middle of eating. You brought me this food. Why didn't you say it? you have four <laughs> minutes and then we're, so this is the main thing I know about Berkeley, because I cannot think of another place where this is true, and I don't know why it's true.
1: Fran grew up in New Jersey, but has lived in New York City since she was 19, After finding success at a young age with her first two books, Metropolitan Life and Social Studies in the late 1970s and early 1980s, she hasn't published much since, citing a decades-long writer's block. Instead, she's supported herself as a professional talker. I first really got to know this side of Fran in Martin Scorsese's 2010 documentary about her, called Public Speaking. They teamed up again for the multi-part Netflix series called Pretend It's a City that came out in early 2021. Fran is 72 now, and on stage in Berkeley, we talked about the writer she spends time with, her opinions on talent versus luck, her vendetta against hiking, and how she's made and maintained friendships over the years. One thing that I think about when I think
0: of you is what a tremendous curator of friendships you are. Um, and, and I'm curious, when you moved to New York, knowing no one as a teenager, where did you make your first friends? You know, I knew no one, and when I
2: told my parents, I'm moving to New York, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move to New York and become a writer. And my mother said, but we don't know anyone in New York. And my parents were not the most worldly people on the planet earth, and And I certainly wasn't. so i I thought she meant I wouldn't have any friends. So I said, "Well, I'll make friends. I, you know she meant you you have to know people yeah. to do anything in New York, um, which is true. And I think <clears throat> my parents said, "Well, you know, you should be in school, but you're not because you got expelled. So you should be in school, so if you will take a course in some school, we will pay for it. So I took a course at the new school, um, which had a student lounge. So I hung around this student lounge. Um, So I met, you know, this girl there, and I went to her apartment. She had two roommates who were older, who worked in advertising, and um, I became their cleaning lady. Mm -hmm. And this was fantastic because um, they were never home. And I would come in and clean the house in, like, two minutes. And then I would spend the rest of the day in their nice air conditioning. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it, wasn't, it was, you know, if you're really young. And it, it, I just met lots of people uh-huh. because I was young. And because it was, during, it was still during the Vietnam War, there were protests. You'd meet people with protests. It was like, there were certainly a lot of people to meet.
0: You've said that with your friendship with Toni Morrison you spoke on the phone nearly every day for 40 years. Was there a pattern in who called whom? No.
2: I wouldn't say no. I mean, I don't I don't think I... I, I didn't speak on the phone to Tony every day. I mean, in the last probably year of her life, I probably did because mm-hmm. she was not well. Um, there were periods because Tony uh, loved crime. I don't mean she was a criminal. But I mean, <laughs> she loved to watch trials. She loved detective, you know, uh-huh. books and... Um, so Tony and I did watch the entire O.J. Simpson trial on television. It was a whole year. So if you're wondering, what did Toni Morrison devote a year of her life to? She did this. <laughs> so, and the O.J. Simpson trial was a year. It was five days. So it was like a job. Um, and it st- because it was in L.A., it started at noon in, in New York. Um, so I would do this every day, and we'd talk about it. And while we watched.
0: You were you in your apartment, she and her yeah. home? Tony
2: was in Princeton. Tony was teaching there. I was actually in Princeton then because I rented a house there because they were putting a roof on my building. It was too noisy. So <clears throat> I was feeling guilty, thinking, Fran, you know, you're here. You're supposed to be writing. Then I would think, well, Tony's doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's because I did not know till then, whatever year that was, that... Tony got up at like four in the morning and went right to the desk. And by the time the O.J. Simpson trial came out, she She was done. So we watched that whole trial. She thought he was innocent. Hmm. Tony thought he was innocent. We fought, we didn't just watch the trial, we fought about the trial. We also watched the Menendez brothers trial. She thought they were innocent. Tony (laughs) thinks everyone's innocent. In fact, at Tony's memorial service, Uh, Angela Davis was there, and she was a very close friend of Tony's. And I was talking to Angela, and I don't know how this came up. I don't remember what we were talking about. I said, yeah, well, Tony thought he was innocent. I said, you know, Tony thought everyone was innocent. She said, I know. She thought, Tony thought, oh, Jay Simpson was innocent. She did. She thought everyone was innocent. I mean, it's an amazing thing that anyone as smart as Tony could think everyone's innocent. You know, but just in regular life, you know, without, like, a major trial. um, We spoke several times a week on the phone. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, Tony, you know, Tony Tony had an apartment in New York. She didn't really like New York, um, and she mostly was in the country. Uh, in the last year or so of her life, maybe a year and a half, and she wasn't well, she stayed in the country, despite my telling her, come to New York. Where she lived, no one goes there to go to the doctor. Okay? <laughs> People come to New York to go to the doctor. Um, but uh, And she really uh, became, like, uh, demanding of company. Mm. So <clears throat> she would say you know, when are you coming up to see me? I would say, you know, Tony, I was there like three days ago. Well, yeah, but come. I said, Tony, I'd love to see you. It takes the whole day, by the way. And she would go, you know, why doesn't Angela come to see me? I would say, Angela was here last week. She would say, yeah, but that was last week. I would say, Angela lives in California. (laughs) You know, it's like bad enough to drive up there from New York. So we talked on the phone a lot. I mean, I, I don't know who called him. I don't
0: huh. And you described kind of even going back to in your high school days that you have always been a, a floater person where you're not friends with one group of people, but you accumulate this community of friends by cir- circulating in different crowds. Do you enjoy when your friends become friends with one another or does that feel like parts of your life are emerging in an uncomfortable way? No, I don't
2: mind it at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not that common because I know so many different kinds of people, but it, it has happened. I mean, high school, you know, uh, I mean, I'm sure everyone here has noticed that there's not as much difference as we would like between high school and adult life. <laughs> um, <laughs> we would like there to be a lot more difference than there is. Um, but there is a difference that in high school, at least when I was in high school, which was 100 years ago, but uh, this probably is still the case, you know, there are such defined groups of people, you know, that, you know, it, that the fact that I was like friends with different kinds of people caused a certain problem in high school, which is I was friends with someone who was a cheerleader and my, and she got kicked off the cheerleading squad for being friends with me, hmm. okay? I didn't kick her off, but whoever ran the cheerleading squad, not that I would know who that was. Um, <laughs> so, uh, no, I, I don't
0: mind it. When you go to a party or when you, pre-pandemic, when there were regular large parties. I, I still go to parties. You still go to parties? I mean, not since Omicron. Uh-huh. But
2: there was that, like, minute. The minute when we yeah, had parties. Yeah, that's where everyone thought, well, it's over. When you go
0: to a party, do you go by yourself?
2: Always. Well, not always. If I can. Uh-huh. I hate going to parties with other people. Uh huh. I cannot believe that people willingly go places with other people. <laughs> but especially a party. Because let someone I actually know some people who don't want to walk into a party by themselves. So let's say, are you going? Can I go with you? Uh-huh. And I always think, oh, I don't want to go with you. I mean, even though I may really like them, they may be among my closest friends. I, it's horrible to go to a party with another person because then you have to, like, deal with them. Like, well, I don't want to leave now. You want to leave now? I want to sit there. I don't want to sit there. I mean, it's like some horrible momentary marriage, <laughs> which is better than a real marriage, but still <laughs> not as good as going to a party by yourself.
0: And so if in an ideal scenario you go to a party by yourself, you show up, are you someone that kind of ends up kind of in a corner with a crew making jokes to each other, or do you like floating around a party?
2: I sit by myself.
0: I like to sit by myself. You sit there and you wait
2: for people to come talk to you. Yeah, yeah. But I don't. I mean, I'm happy (laughs) if they come, but if they don't come, I'm fine. Because I really just want to watch you know, Ah. the party. And yes, people will talk to me. Um, I'm not a mingler, if that's what you mean, you know. I mean, I see, I really enjoy parties. This is considered a very unusual thing. You know, I mean, everyone I know does and has always said that they hate parties. I have never understood this. And they would say, why do you like parties? Because they're parties. (laughs) I mean, the point of them is fun. So why wouldn't you like them? And if you don't like them, why are you there? there are certain kind of parties I don't like. Everyone says they hate cocktail parties, but I really hate cocktail parties because I hate standing up and I don't drink. So cocktail parties are okay if, if there's a place to sit, but there are certain places where there's no place to sit at all. Like in museums, they, they, there's no place to sit at a cocktail yeah. party. And I always think like, you invited me here, you should provide me with a seat, you know, and that Picasso.
0: It's the best party like a dinner party?
2: It depends, you know, uh, dinner parties are good, usually. It can be the worst kind of party. Yeah, because you you're get stuck. stuck. Yeah, yeah, you can really get stuck, <laughs> you know. It's like a little better now that I'm old, not that many things are, but because, you know, when I was young, you know, at dinner party, you, you know, it mostly you, you sat between two men so that you alternated hearing about their career. <laughs> you know, which they described to you as if it was the landing at Normandy. <laughs> which you frequently wished it was, you know, so, I mean, it's much, these, there's certain things that are better, you know, it's better to be old. It's not worth it. But since you don't have a choice, you know, it is better.
0: (laughs) Do you think most of your closest friends are people that you think are talented?
2: Yeah, probably. I mean, I don't care what it is they do. Um, No, I have friends who are artists, who are very successful, whose work I don't like, okay? But whose work, I I wouldn't say I hate, but whose work I don't love. Um, That would not be true of writers, though. You know, I really have as few friends as possible who are writers.
0: Why do you think that is?
2: Have you ever met any writers? I (laughs) I mean, like, truthfully, like, not the best group of people to be friends with. (laughs) I mean, I prefer dead writers, you know, because you don't see them at parties. And um, so, no, I've certainly never hung around, you know, anything approaching a literary circle or anything like that. These things are horrible. That's high school. I mean, that is really the worst, you know. So, uh, but I, I have some friends who are writers. All my friends who are writers, I love their work. I could not be friends with a writer whose work I didn't like. But a painter or a musician, I don't care that much. I mean, these are lesser (laughs) things, let's face it.
1: Coming up, Fran and I talk about money and ambition. Americans have this idea that people
2: become very rich because they're very smart. And I always think, like, if you think that, you have never met a very smart person or a very rich person. (laughs) I I once told a very rich guy, probably one of the richest guys in the country, I said, you know, if I made a list of the 10 smartest people I've ever known and the 10 richest people, there wouldn't be one crossover.
1: This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Fran Lebowitz and I spoke earlier this year in front of a live audience in Berkeley, California. Here's more of that conversation.
0: Speaking of talent, I'm curious what your observations have been in the art world, in the literary world. During your time in New York, what do you think is the relationship between talent and ambition?
2: They're not related. I mean, I don't think they're related at all, and I don't think there's a relationship between talent and success either. Okay, so, I mean, success in every single field, you get it the same way, by being good at being successful. You know, I mean, there may be some people who just sit there and produce wonderful work and someone comes in, but I've never seen that. Okay, so I will tell you that I know, uh, especially a couple of writers who are super, super talented and who have very little success because they're just bad at that. I mean, one person I'm thinking of, it's not that she's so bad at being successful, is that as every time she's disappointed, you know, in a reception work, I always say, there are like 10 people who would understand this. You know, so sometimes it's that, you know, but that's not that common, let's face it. So um, I I think, you know, some people are good at being successful. You know, they know how to do it. Um, Some people are lucky. You know, your first luck in life is where you're born. Okay? Like, Right now, I'm sure today, there were many people born in Syrian refugee camps. These people are not gonna be successful writers. They might be great writers. We will never know. So that is really the first look. And people, you know, most people that I know and that you know, not all, I don't know you, but I know this is true, um, are, were already lucky when they were born. Um, and so that is number one. The number one secret to success is that, you know. Um, in business, you know, in money-making, it's ruthlessness, period. I mean, you can't be stupid and be very rich, but it's two things, making money. It's ruthlessness and love, love of money. I mean, love. I mean, we're Americans, you know. We like money, you know. We love a buck, but <laughs> it, they love money. They never live well. I mean, they live very elaborately, but, I mean, they live, you know, you never think, oh, that's really nice. It's never really nice. It's just really expensive. <laughs> it's just really expensive. You know that's not the same thing you know and I mean I've met a lot of these guys it's like sitting next to a wolf you know I mean there and that's how you make billions of dollars and that's why you think it's okay to make billions of dollars because it surely is not and they think they should have it you know
0: so let me ask you when they I should would... be in jail <laughs> When I was when I was preparing to speak with you, I had a, a short conversation with your speaking agent, and I said, I'm curious, like what's shifted in her life in the last couple of years, wondering wondering if how the pandemic has changed things. And he told me, Well, she's wildly successful and super famous. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so I'm curious
0: for you, since the Netflix series came out at a time when no one could leave their house. So a lot of people watched it. Um and those who didn't already know and love you came to know and love you. What's changed in your life being super famous and successful?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, Netflix certainly made a difference.
0: You know, I mean, uh, I've
2: mean, I never, I've never seen Netflix <clears throat> because I don't have a Wi-Fi connection in my apartment. But I know about it. Of course, I heard about it. Um, but I, the reason it came out during the pandemic was because... It was postponed numerous times. It, we didn't know there was gonna be a pandemic. If we did, we would have told people, I would have, it was, by the way, you know, <laughs> stock up because there's this play coming. So, so that was one postponement. But the day after it came out, you know, the first phone call I got about it was from Dubai, but from a friend of mine who's a journalist who was there. Um, then someone called me from like Geneva, then LA, then Cl- so So then I realized you know, that it was all over the world. Yeah, that made a big difference.
0: As you made a little more money from this project... No, not from Netflix. Not from Netflix. <laughs> no. 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 It no. led to other opportunities, presumably yes, that led to, to making yeah. more money. Do you now think you're paying enough taxes?
2: You know, I have felt most of my adult life pretty much like the designated taxpayer in New York. <laughs> <laughs> okay? I, I also... It, the, my tax situation uh, has helped me predict elections because I only make money during democratic administrations. So I only make money, like when my first book came out, it was a bestseller. Jimmy Carter was president. The top tax bracket, which in New York you were in, in the 1978, if you made $100,000 a year, that was the top tax bracket. Um, the taxes were 70%, seven zero. That's what I paid for my first book, 70%. I never paid less than 50% of my income in taxes. Um, now, this would be okay with me if other people were also doing this, all right? So, uh, this would be, and also if they would like spend them in some sane, humane way, you know, I mean, so that, uh, I think people should pay taxes, I just don't think it should just be me. (laughs) I think we should spread it around a little bit.
0: Uh Uh-huh. I have a question for you about nature. For what? About nature. Nature. Yes. Naturally, you'd come to me. Yes, naturally. <laughs> um, you have said the outdoors is what I go through to get from my apartment to the taxi cab. <laughs> um, I do wonder in this time where being outside is a place where we can take our masks off, it's a place where we can gather with friends safely more than inside. Have you noticed your relationship to nature changing at all recently?
2: No. No.
0: And there is no more nature in New York
2: than there was before. So, I know, I mean, I lived for 26 years, two blocks from Central Park. I never went there. (laughs) I mean, I would go there to, like, walk through to get uptown. But there's certain things people do that I never do, okay? I never go to the park to go to the park. I never take a walk. I walk as a form of transportation. I walk much more than people who take walks. But I think, like, (laughs) why would you take a walk? Because you you know you could walk to get someplace, which is one of the reasons I like living in a city, because just taking a walk, you know, I see that people just take walks. They live like in the suburbs and they take walks. This to me is the worst of all possible worlds put together. So it's like, <laughs> <clears throat> um, so I never do that. But the worst thing people do, I mean, when I say worst, I don't mean um, you know uh, malicious. I just mean like mind-boggling is take hi- go on hikes. <laughs> Hiking is really an astonishing thing to me. I know that people around here, they go on hikes. Okay? Yeah. So first of all, the clothes, horrible. (laughs) You know? Like, the clothes are horrible. I'm sorry. But I mean, the young Julie Christie would look terrible in these clothes. I mean, the clothes are horrible. I know that people think they look great in these clothes. But they don't. Mostly people hike and they have to, like, go up things. Hills, mountains, stuff like that. I would do this... Only if there was a German soldier behind me with a gun. <laughs> and then they get to the top and they go, they look around at stuff that you could see, like, you could see this stuff in a movie. Yeah, mountains, it's very beautiful. Or sometimes you can see them from, like, the roof of a building when you're smoking. Um, <laughs> like, here, there's a lot of very good views. Here, I don't have to hike at all. Um, <clears throat> And then they have to go down worse. I think it's worse to go down. And people bring their dogs. So in case like it's not bad enough, there's dogs there. And I have actually been forced to do this, which is how I know about hiking. <laughs> and I actually did this in Alaska, okay, which, which has bears in it, okay? So, uh, and one thing, I don't want to see are bears. Um, so I was hiking in Alaska. I mean, this was obviously not a trip I paid for, but there was, there was a guy... <laughs> Who was a bear guide. That was his profession. Uh-huh. So you're not going to meet him at a party in New York, I can assure you. He's a bear guide. Either he could take you bear hunting, people shoot them. You can shoot them or you can just look at them. Like I would prefer neither because I'm afraid of bears. I'm afraid of dogs. So I don't want to see a bear, which is a dog, by the way. Did you know that?
0: Well, by what definition?
2: They're related to dogs. Okay, okay. Um, so we're walking along and I'm, he's th- he, the guy goes... Now, his name was Bruce. I know it seems like not a good name for a bear guide, but that was his name. (laughs) He said, now, if you see a bear, here's what you have to do. Stand on your toes. Don't run. Do not run away because bears run very fast. You could never outrun a bear. And if you run, they're going to think that you are something they eat. And they will run after you and they will eat you. So he said, you should stand on your toes and put your hands in the air so that you look big to the bear. You should make yourself as big as possible, and you should sing.
0: Uh-huh. Because
2: if you sing, the bear will know that you're not something it eats, mm-hmm. and it'll be more wary of you. So I said, look, Bruce, listen to me. <laughs> I said, I promise you that there is not a shred of possibility that I would have the presence of mind to stand on my toes, put my hands in there and sing. I said, if I saw a bear, I know I would run. He said, well, then you would be eaten by a bear. Because he would run, and he would catch you, and he would eat you. So the entire hike, which seemed to be to take years, I was on top of this guy. So much, because he had this big gun, so much that he finally turned to me and said, you know, friend, I feel I should tell you I'm a married man. (laughs) I said, Bruce, you're safe with me. (laughs) All the people I was with, they couldn't stop laughing. I said, Bruce... Your appeal for me is that you have this giant gun. And I am sure that if we saw a bear, you would shoot the bear, and I wouldn't have to pretend to sing, and I would not get eaten by a bear. Um, so I don't like, I'm not against nature. I, You know, all these people who love nature and go in all the time, they're dangerous to nature. Not me. Yeah. I never go there. Yeah. I leave it alone.
0: I just, before we move on... Um, I want to know about the friend who thought, Who should I invite for this trip to Alaska Let me put this together <laughs> Fran
2: <laughs> well, you know I mean, if you're going to go on the trip, this is a very lavish trip, I, you know then you probably think, and we should have someone who does not want to go on the bear hike, but we force her to go
0: because we have the boat
2: you know, that's what I think
0: I okay, so outside is not a place of uh, uh, a place that you seek out. I'm, I want to be able to picture when you have a book that you're very excited to read, where do you read it in your home? How do you set up the... the I read on the sofa. Sofa. All
2: right. I have a sofa that I designed. Um, it's, so, it's so falling apart because I had it made like in 1978. Um, <clears throat> I designed it to read on. In other words, like, one thing I hate, I know a lot of people like, a lot of people have a lot of pillows on their sofa. I don't want, like, to be, like, eaten by a sofa. Uh, um, So the sofa's leather um, so that you can, like, slide. You don't have to, like, get, like, eaten by some thick material. Um, And the arms um, are very, like, rolled so you can put your head on it without any pillows. And this is the perfect place to read.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Was that your first major purchase for yourself? I bought everything.
2: Almost that I own all in one year. Uh So, you know, it was all new in 1978 when my first book came out. Uh Before that, I had nothing. Then I had everything. And now I have everything, but it's very old.
0: (laughs) 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 I want to ask you one last question. Something that you've written about uh, and that's been a part of your life is memorial services. Both people you have uh, loved as a young woman who are in your life, who died young, people you have loved throughout your adult life and who have gone before you. And I'm curious if you have any observations on what makes a memorial service well done.
2: I have spoken at what seems like a million memorial services, which I mean, it started during AIDS, where like at a certain point, I thought like, this is is my profession. And uh, it's ho- it's horrible, by the way, I think to speak of memorial services. Um, but I have also been to many, but I haven't been to that many where I haven't spoken because even if I'm not supposed to speak, when I get there, people say, oh, you're, would you like to speak? No. I, it's very hard to say no. You know, you're not usually allowed to say no. Um, but it is a hard thing to do. Um, and one thing I definitely noticed, not me, but everyone else, not everyone else, but a lot of other people, is the very significant number of people who take the opportunity to talk about themselves. It's unbelievable. I mean, I've seen some really shocking things, like, your my mouth is hanging open. Like, could we get to the guy who died? hmm You know, and that's really common. I mean, that may be a very particular New York thing. I think this is maybe a less common thing among, like, I don't know, nicer people. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I have seen, like, and especially, you know, people who are well-known do that. But sometimes people do such a, you know, they're so great that you remember what they did, and it really, you know, but it's not that common. I would prefer. I would be very happy to never to do it again.
1: That was Fran Lebowitz at the Berkeley Repertory Theatre. Thank you to everyone at the Berkeley Rep for inviting me on stage with Fran. And if you find yourself in the Bay Area, make sure you check out what's on stage there. It'll likely be excellent and like nothing else you've ever seen. I feel so lucky to live nearby. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Afi Yellow Duke. The rest of the team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Zoe Azule, Tracy Hunt, Lindsay Foster Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. It takes a lot of other people at WNYC to make this podcast, and during this season of gratitude, we want to take just a minute to say who we're thankful for. Our audience team, who help us reach new listeners and engage better with all of you—Mike Berry, Tara Sonin, Michelle Shu, Theodora Kuslan, Andrea Latimer, Robin Villenkoff, and Kim Nowaki. Our legal team, who answer all our questions and help us avoid trouble, Cindy Kim, Lauren Cooperman, and Ivan Zimmerman. Sadia Bennett and Melissa Frank, our HR colleagues, who helped us with some clutch new hires this year. And everyone else in HR, who manages our benefits, our work culture, and our labor contracts. Rachel Lieberman, who helps us with our website and all things digital. Our colleagues in WNYC membership, Liz Weber and Dan Fitchett, who support us, and all of you who donate to Death, Sex, and Money, and Vanessa Cervini-Rios and Rebecca Kaplan-Haz, and the whole underwriting team who manage the sponsorship messages that also support our work. Dahlia Dagger, Elizabeth Cornell, and Jennifer houlihan Roussel, are fantastic publicity partners who help us spread the word about our work. Miriam Barnard and David Gable are partners in logistics and creativity. Katie Bishop and Emily Boteen our longtime collaborators at Death, Sex, and Money, who moved on to other adventures this year and who we are still very grateful for. And finally, to Andrew Golis and Kenya Young for your listening and leading WNYC studios into a new future together. Thanks also to David Altman and Northfield, Illinois, for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. You can join David and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.